0: Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today, I'm joined by Bobby Temps, who is the host of Mental, the podcast to destigmatize mental health, which speaks with a range of individuals about their mental health journey. Bobby joins us today to discuss their experience of mental health, what they have learned from hosting Mental podcast, and the importance of understanding the impact of dual diagnosis on recovery. Hello, Bobby.
1: Hello. It's lovely to be here. (laughs) We were talking off air about how it's fun when you get to have the tables turned. I'm used to being a podcaster (laughs) and I feel like I'm a better host than I am a guest so I'm delighted to chat to you and get some more practice.
0: (laughs) It's really funny actually I saw some friends um, the other day I went to London and saw some of my friends and they were asking me like you know how do you do the podcast and how do you think of the questions and stuff um and they were like do you prefer being the host or the guest and I was like I don't know whether you can tell but I like to talk so I like to be the host <laughs> because it makes me shut up for once in a while so uh yeah I mean I remember when I came on your podcast and I was just like waffle 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 so um if you waffle today it's completely fine
1: Nice okay payback time (laughs) no no, you didn't waffle at all and I think it's yeah it's nice kind of having that contrast like I feel Mm. it with my dyslexia as well it's kind of nice to be the host as well because I get so much more time to think of Mm. everything I say and I'm required to say so much less and the result is like I end up being really quotable because (laughs) the insights are so condensed they actually really say something because they have to and I think that's part of the reason why, like, I both love interviewing counsellors, but also it can be kind of challenging because mm. that's their job, you know? So if so you true. give them the platform to talk for longer, they're just packing in so many insights. And then I'm like, oh, I've got a hundred threads to pull there. I don't even know which of these questions.
0: Yeah, <laughs> There's so many places I could go with this conversation. I wanted to start with you today to talk about your experience um so I mean I don't know overly a lot about your experience but I when we spoke I got the sort of gist that you had experience of an eating disorder um so yeah I wondered if you wanted to share that with the listeners to start with
1: sure so yes I do and also depression so that's part of the like first-hand jaw diagnosis perspective mm. I have and it's, it's tricky to like talk about even one without the other because they do feel quite interlinked. And also the depression was the one I knew about first. So I think that was always there, uh, or at least it was there for as long as I can like possibly delve through limited childhood memories, a uh, sort of feeling of lowness, of isolation, of, you know, kind of, hollowed out empty feeling and I think I attributed that a lot to being like a lonely child like I don't know where I got that kind of phrase from but you know perhaps it is knowing so little about mental ill health and you know the stigma that can contribute to silence I didn't have the language I didn't have the understanding of what certain feelings were and so loneliness perhaps felt like the nearest thing that I was aware of and you know that that carried on, well, you know, through through my life since. And it was a long time until I got a diagnosis for that in my um in my late teens And And at that point, you know, I was really bad with it and had, you know, been searching along the line, sort of desperate to find out like what is going on for me. You know, I knew there was something wrong. And by the time I actually got to a GP, um, I don't know if you're aware of this. I looked it up the other day, it's still there, but there's a like quiz on the NHS website that will give you, it won't diagnose you obviously, but it will give you an indication of whether or not you might have the symptoms of depression and say, you know, kind of nudge you to go to the GP. Mm. And I remember taking that so many times, you know, and tried to sort of like, rationalize my way out of it of being like, okay, well, you know, maybe if I take it at a different time of day, or maybe I'm exaggerating some of these feelings and like downgrading all my answers. And every time <laughs> it came back telling me to go to the GP. So eventually I did. And I guess you know that's part of the internalized stigma mm-hmm. that I was trying so hard to find another another rationale, another explanation when in fact reading up on depression and you know giving myself some of the education that I wish I'd had from school or or elsewhere from a younger age it, it really did click into place it made so much sense and so when I was able to kind of push through some of the fears and get to um, being diagnosed by my GP then i I already knew mm. and and if anything and this like I find it so silly in hindsight but I can see where my mind was at I went in and because I'd like done essentially so much self-study on depression, I thought I was going to bias the diagnosis. Like I obviously underestimated like the medical model and there's a bit more to it than, you know, uh, a kid listing their symptoms isn't going to, you know, Mm. there's a bit more to it than that. Um, But I think because my head was so full of like the names of all the symptoms that I related to, I instead went in like primarily talking about not being able to sleep because that was a part of the escalation that hadn't been a part when I was younger. And so that was a big part of my, you know, worry and a major part of, you know, that vicious cycle. Of the depression was contributing to the sleeplessness, that was feeding back into the depression again. And so I went into the GP talking about those symptoms. And unsurprisingly, I still got a depression diagnosis. Obviously, she dug a bit deeper and we we had a good a good chat. And luckily, she, you know, had a bit of wiggle room in her schedule that day to take a bit more time with me. Um and so that's kind of a bit of background on that one. And by contrast, my eating disorder, anorexia, has been a lot more difficult. I mean, that was tricky, but a whole different level of coming to terms with that. And, you know, strangely kind of different kinds of stigma, which maybe wasn't things I'd expect. And certainly a whole different level of like pushing down. Knowing really, you know, I think I did know, but like pushing that down because acknowledging that I had a problem could have been a threat to the very thing that was making me feel stable Mm -hmm. and making me feel like I had certain elements of control, certain elements of structure, even when my life felt very chaotic and I felt very damaged. And it wasn't really until getting into podcasting that I kind of had to confront that because I was getting to interview people who were being so honest and open about their experiences. And I could no longer go on with, yeah, rationalizing away why I could relate so much to people that had eating disorders. Uh, Like, for example, my favorite character on TV growing up was Cassie from Skins who had anorexia and, you know, all of these things I'd explain away perhaps and then interviewing people I have to face no there's there's something I, I relate to at my core in these conversations.
0: From kind of what you're saying it sounds almost like you're saying that maybe it was harder to admit the eating disorder but then equally kind of as you explained it it almost sounded like you kind of didn't necessarily I don't know whether it wasn't wanted to admit but maybe didn't think that you had depression or were kind of trying to you know move out of that so do you think from your perspective that one of them was harder to kind of say I've got this or were they both Mm -hmm. equally for different reasons
1: no um the eating disorder was definitely yeah harder to admit to it still is Like it, as much as I've done work on it and I'm, you know, very publicly known essentially for being mentally ill, which is a weird, (laughs) weird thing. I mean, I'm known for campaigning and a whole range of things, but a lot of it does come down to I'm known for talking about certain things I've been through. And yet, it is easier to say the word depression. It is still, you know, if I'm in environments where I think there might be any kind of stigma or things I have to overcome in conversations with people. That's the one I lead with. And, you know, I don't think that is just down to that's the one that I've had the diagnosis for longer. You know, I think it is the stigma and I think it is partly my kind of coming to, yeah, it's not just acceptance. It was also awareness. So definitely Mm. most of my, you know, definitely going through childhood with depression, I didn't know what it was. You know, that was real. It wasn't, it wasn't denial. But then when it came to, you know, the problem escalating, that's when the denial kind of kicked in, you know, maybe as a kind of self-soothing or protective mechanism. Um, Whereas, I partly kind of talk about it in that, you know, I'm always keen to kind of own my shit, right? So, definitely there was huge elements of that you know when I I did grow up I can't name you a single male I ever came across Mm. that had an eating disorder and you know the, the wild thing is looking back on that the caveat I know now is that I knew of because of course they were out there of course I met them of course I sat on a bus with other guys in my situation um but I didn't know and I certainly didn't see them in in media representation or anywhere kind of broadly accessible like that and that has changed phenomenally you know and I'm that's one of the things I'm proudest of to be one of those people that's that's out there talking about this as a man now um but yeah that was that was definitely a part of it and that's also definitely a part of like the specific stigmas the specific stigmas around eating disorders of like you know, the blame that we can receive for them, the ideas that, you know, it's just eat something and all that bullshit. Um, I, I realise now I've sworn a lot and I never asked you if that was
0: okay. It's fine.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's fine. Um, it's, it's really interesting because obviously everybody's experience is different and, you know, we are different genders and stuff like that. But as you were th- speaking then about um, kind of, you know, saying the word eating disorder or whatever feels more difficult recently I've actually had the opposite so like as I said to you before um before we started I've been off for two months with depression and anxiety and it's taken me I mean I've had depression and anxiety since I was 16 so it's like nearly 10 years but you know it's been at its worst and when I finished, like, had to come away from it. I'm, I can say that I've that I've had an eating disorder. It's like, I can say my name's Hannah, but I think mm-hmm. that's because I talk about it so much. Whereas the depression and anxiety, you know, I was, like, going to the gym and people were like, oh, what are you up to? And I'm like, oh, I've got two months off. Like, you know, I'm going to go on holiday and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't say that it was because I was depressed. And I, like, still now saying it, I'm like, I can't believe you're saying these words out loud this is weird, Um, Mm -hmm. so it's, do you think it's an element of you kind of the depression came first and that was maybe one that you were more, you talked about more or is that my experience and that yours is different?
1: I think that's definitely part of it so practice does help Mm -hmm. you know having these conversations and that's a lovely part of what I get to share through my work in in podcasting, you know, I get to lead conversations that then we hear about being replicated by the listeners in their own lives. And so, of, of course, that, that's one of the wonderful things that it does get easier. You know, whatever else happens with the, with the illness, the conversations do tend to follow a easier kind of linear upswing. And yet, I don't feel like that was the full story for me. You know, I do think there's definitely different stigmas that are attributed to different conditions. Um, You know, having more than one, you kind of experience that comparison, Mm -hmm. then there can also be having two. And, you know, people have all sorts of wild things to say, and that can include if you have more than one diagnosis. I've had people fully say to my face, oh, I believe that one, but you don't seem like the the person to have this one. And I you believe all I can, it. Well, I know. Wow. But, and, and like all of that is wrong. And all I can ever think to say, and you know, that's been said more than once, is okay, well, my doctor knows that I have it. Yeah. <laughs> like, what do you mean? I don't seem like the person, you know, but that is, it's easier for me to laugh about now. You know, I know how harmful that stuff is but I'd always kind of rather people have that conversation with me. Like I actively try and come across in a non-combative way, as much as I correct people and have like boundaries and all the rest of it, I would rather people say their stupid shit to me mm-hmm. and then we can we can talk about it and save them saying that to somebody else. Then they kind of hold it in, let it fester up. And then they're having like a heated argument with a family member and then something comes out that could you know really change the course of somebody's health
0: mm. yeah definitely I mean that I think that's very um I don't know what the word would be but um I'm very grateful you know that you you are doing that and you're in a place where you can have those conversations like you said in a non-combative way because I think you know like you say in certain situations so sort of sort of conversations somebody could go from potentially maintaining or you know surviving on a level and a comment like that could send you mm-hmm. kind of sweeping down um so I, I really wanted to talk to you about um mental your podcast um and we obviously you've very nicely mentioned it quite a <laughs> lot I can tell you've got your own podcast um to talk about sort of the idea of dual diagnosis um because I think I think it's it's quite common I, I don't personally think I've met somebody that has had an eating disorder and not had another um mental health diagnosis but from from your podcast what is kind of your experience and understanding when talking to people
1: sure so I know that they are very common so like but it's also difficult to get statistics around Mm. because it's difficult enough to get statistics on all the different conditions and like how do you calculate combining those? Um, And dual diagnosis is part of it. Like if we just went on percentages of every condition and added them up, well, you would get a higher percentage than reality because so many people have more than one. Um, But one that I can give you is from MIND in 2016, they reported that 7.8% of people experience anxiety and depression, or um, in that given year, that was reported. And so, if we think of like that common stat from Mind, which is you know the one in four um, will experience a mental illness in a given year, then you know that gives you an idea that's 25% versus potentially 7.8% having just that specific dual diagnosis. So when you add in more, um, a lot of estimates would would come in around half of people, if, well, at least half of people that have one, have at least one other. Mm. Um, And so that kind of gives you a a scale of this, and yet we're living in a, a time with COVID where we've all experienced a certain shared trauma of the pandemic even though our experiences have been so different and certain things like the isolation of lockdowns that have exacerbated people's Mm. experiences whilst also the isolation makes it harder to survey people and gather statistics in usual ways so (laughs) it's a weird way of caveat to to say like those are the stats but also you know mine themselves were were coming on the BBC through the pandemic saying that they expect the majority of their statistics have doubled including the one in
0: four
1: mm. so a lot yeah a lot of people <laughs> that's your question yeah.
0: and i think um, you know you mentioned loneliness there and that that feels so poignant at the moment especially it was you know mental health awareness week last week with loneliness being the top like you know the topic of conversation and i think it was such a an important one to have this year because, like you said, coming out of the pandemic um, isolation and loneliness were really, you know, big issues. And especially when we first came out of the pandemic, like it was, I found it very difficult to socialize again because you just kind of, you know, you'd been doing it behind a computer screen the whole time, like not going to work, not not even speaking to somebody in the shop. so, you know, the fact that, you know, mind have said they expect their figures to double, like, I'm, I'm literally not surprised, because I can imagine, I can't imagine sort of the impact that that's had on everybody.
1: It's been massive, and I think very difficult, not only for you know, mental health charities to measure it, but also ourselves to wrap mm. our heads around the scale of what happened. There's also factors like, you know, the guilt and the kind of comparison culture that can come in where we feel, oh, well, my experience might not be have been as bad as somebody else's. And therefore, is it is it valid? Am I okay to be upset about certain things I went through? Mm. And to me, the, the answer is obviously yes. And that's partly something that's informed by, the podcasting that the most jarring thing I ever come across when interviewing a guest is when they really open up to me and share their experiences. And and so often tell me things they've never told anybody before. And it's such a privilege that people feel comfortable enough with the, the space that we host and with me to do that. And then, you know, near the end of the conversation, they may be reflecting on all the things they've shared and, yeah, it happens far too often that people then feel the need to kind of caveat or explain away, maybe in the ways that, you know, I used to and say, oh, but you know, I am aware, like obviously I know that I've waffled a lot and other people have it worse. And, you know, that all these things come in where that somebody can kind of do down their own experience. And as someone that listens to that and is really connected with what they've shared, it's so jarring to hear. And so often I do jump in and have to be like, well,
0: mm.
1: you know, there are people that have it worse. There are people that have it better.
0: Mm.
1: Neither of them have a direct impact on your experience.
0: No. Now, and everybody's experience is individual. And I remember a friend said to me once that, you know, the worst thing in the world that's ever happened to me might feel the same as the worst thing in the world that's happened to somebody else and they could be completely different severities but at the end of the day it's it's what you're experiencing and like you said it's all valid um I just was thinking then when you said about sort of comparison and it just kind of sparked a thought in my mind um have you ever like with the dual diagnosis have you ever compared sort of like the depression and the anorexia as like you know maybe maybe one was worse or one was more valid has that ever kind of those thoughts crossed your mind
1: yes i think definitely around the uh, one being more valid so the the depression like i said i i don't remember not having it mm-hmm. you know the feelings that i didn't understand as a young person go back as far as i can remember and so that you know whilst there was challenges there, kind of coming to terms with it. When I finally did get that diagnosis, I'd done a lot of the, the coming to terms with that. You know, I'd, I'd sort of, um, I knew what was coming in, in that office. However, yeah, so I guess that one in some ways felt valid because it, it just felt like a part of me at that point that I was like, okay, I'm unlocking a part of how I make sense here. In the same way, maybe having the diagnosis for dyslexia made sense of so many things I struggled with as a kid. And, you know, really at that point was, oh, so I'm not dumb because that's, that's what I thought. You know, I saw myself struggling in a way that other kids didn't. And, you know, I, I couldn't read when a lot of my peers did, you know, really significant um, learning differences. And, you know, that unlocked a lot of how I made sense. So I guess the depression felt perhaps similar to that in making things make sense. Mm -hmm. Whereas with anorexia, that came out of body dysmorphia first. Mm -hmm. So as we know, body dysmorphia can be a symptom of other conditions, but also can be its own diagnosable condition. For me, it it was something that was there kind of in the background probably wouldn't have been diagnosable when I was younger um certain things of the, the negative self-attitude was to do with more so the depression but then when I got older it, it grew and then became a, an eating disorder um as more symptoms joined it I guess I would say and I see I'm such a visual learner I'm like literally like pulling
0: i'm the same i Uh, gesticulate and everything and i'm like no one can see this but at the moment i'm like spraying my hands everywhere
1: (laughs) and so with that one yeah it it was harder it was harder yes partly because of the stigma you know because of certain things I'd, i'd soaked up unconsciously of feeling like well i should be able to just eat something other people are saying it other people are eating fine and perhaps because I knew a time before that, it therefore felt like I should have done something to prevent it. And that's that's so not how I would ever encourage anyone to think. It's certainly not a way I've ever seen anyone else's experience of mental illness. Mm-hmm. And I've got to hear about so many people's experiences. But you know, we can often have these double standards towards ourselves. And so I think I did judge myself in certain ways and you know that can still be something that is a contrast between them. I judge myself more for one than the other even Mm. though I know I shouldn't but I don't know maybe it's something to do with the externalizing nature of one being to do with food that I feel like I should have more control over that than the other one that feels like it's more um Yes, sort of strangely, strangely innate, that like a certain day I am feeling more depressed and it feels like, okay, well, this is my mode for the day. Whereas my um, compulsions towards food, I still have to sometimes remind myself it's not necessarily a choice, you know. Mm -hmm. Some some elements of it can be a choice. Some elements of, you know, the self-care I can do, the choices that I can make around, you know, Therapy and looking after myself, there are choices there, but the eating disorder is not a choice.
0: Mm. I have just had an interesting thought. Um, and it re- I think it ties into what you were just saying in terms of kind of, you know, some days are kind of more sad days. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but then with the sort of the eating disorder behaviors, um, Basically, what I'm trying to say is, it's it's also, I guess, ties in the dyslexia as well, because, you know, I don't think you would ever use the phrase, I'm recovered from dyslexia. But in, you know, anorexia treatment and stuff, the aim or the goal, you know, you always have this, like, full recovery in mind, whatever that looks like to you. That's, that's kind of what you hold as this shrine that you're aiming for like where do you sit with the depression is it sort of something that you manage day to day or is it something that you're aiming to kind of achieve full recovery from
1: well it's tricky to know how controversial this might be to all your listeners but I I don't really believe in full recovery and it's not that I think it's impossible but I think that it can be a kind of dangerous concept and kind of a very anti-binary of a lot of things in mental health. And, you know, one of the big overarching ones is this narrative of being ill and being well, that does feel very informed by physical health, that we're kind of raised with an understanding of you know bodies getting broken and repaired like being a kid you know breaking your arm and getting a cast and then it's fixed but it's not even true with physical health you know there's the aging process is ongoing Mm -hmm. there's you know kind of ebbs and flows like you know your teeth dropping out when you're a kid and then you're getting new ones it's it's not it's not as linear as things are broken or fixed and it's very much not like that with mental illness either and so Mm -hmm you know, the the main time I kind of come across it is sometimes we get like pictures for the podcast that we have a lot of them. And every so often we have one drop into the inbox where someone comes in and they they say, you know, I'm um, fully recovered from such and such a condition. Um, Let's say an eating disorder. We've had emails like that before. And, you know, I can show your listeners how. Or like my book, Could be the answer yeah (laughs) you're right to raise your eyebrow see that's that's my concern about it so a the idea of like the the standard that might be setting for us that if i was judging myself by being fully recovered or not well then every day of my life i failed to meet that judgment don't want that (laughs) that's horrible and you know maybe that concept does work for for some people but I think it's it's scary personally it's scary for what that could do for other people's psyches but also it's dangerous to see some of the repercussions like the thinking that one book is going to be an answer to every person's diverse Mm -hmm. experiences and I do wonder sometimes what happens to that person if they think they're fully recovered and then they have a relapse, or, or however language you would use around that. Does do, did you fail? Was do you feel that it was all a you know a lie, or that you've been undone? Um, so, yeah. Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, I think <laughs> I don't think I don't believe it, for eating disorders, sisters. I don't think I mm-hmm. don't think that full recovery is possible. What I think is that we've got the wrong idea of what full recovery is and I think if I think and people might be different but this is from my perspective I'm gonna yeah I'm gonna caveat it with this so I thought that I was pretty much there um I would say that I thought that I was fully recovered and so I took a job in eating disorders and after then a few months I realized you're not fully recovered it's just here in a different format and for me personally um uh, maybe not because I'm still doing the podcast but I see see it as
1: that part though how was that for you to realize that maybe you weren't fully recovered
0: horrific because like you say but but the problem was that I'd gone from my identity as an eating disorder to my identity mm-hmm. was being fully recovered. And that's, that's what I was going to say earlier. I think that's when it's the issue because it just translates itself. Eating disorders are so incredibly sneaky. They just translate into something else. So then you're the fully recovered one that's supporting other people with their eating disorder. Or, um, you know, I, I think if you're in... What I've basically drawn the conclusion to now is that I mean, I'm still not there. I know I'm not because of the past few months, but I want to have, you know, some time away. And if in five years time, I'm still, I feel like I have separated myself from the disorder and I want to go back into research. Cool. That's great. Mm -hmm. You actually are interested in it because genuinely it does get me so excited. I'm really interested in it. But at the moment I can't separate Hannah from the eating disorder. And I think that's the problem people make is they don't have that time away. It goes from I had an eating disorder to I'm recovered and now I'm, I'm now I'm gonna um, be the you know person to support everybody else. And it, it it's still it needs to sort of still alive. Yeah.
1: I've noticed that trend as well. And I I wouldn't assume to speak on your experience, but I, I've certainly wondered in in other people's experiences that are close to me that sometimes that that seems like it can be a shift of some of the obsessive natures mm. around certain eating disorders that maybe you're you're still you're still really focused on this area because there is still stuff to work on you know and and maybe that's um yeah, maybe that's part of it that we don't even trust ourselves yeah. to stay recovered, and so we're like, okay, well if I become academic in it. If I, if I'm working in the field, then I get to be the other side of the table. And I've seen, you know, firsthand through like family members of mine and also interviewing people in the medical industry, you know, how dangerous it can be from that side that so many people go into medicine and can have this mentality of like, my physical health is great, my mental health is great, I'm ready to be a doctor. And then perhaps being in in, uh, being the other side of the table and seeing different symptoms come up in other people, you can realize, Oh, I do have stuff. Mm. And I, you know, certainly can have a lot of stuff to do with my mental health that, that I didn't realize there might be issues there, or, you know, the, the incredible stress that can be working in the NHS, for example, with all its pressures can, you know, push people into um, certain levels of mental ill health Mm. And, you know, it terrifies me how many medical professionals are out there that feel like they maybe can't get the help or that their colleagues might not understand, or they might be seen as, as somehow kind of they've cracked in their professionalism, mm. that they've succumbed to something. Mm. And it's, it's a horrible mindset to even describe, but I'm only using, you know, descriptions I've had of people, you know, working in those fields. And, you know, so I, I don't know, maybe it's like it can be a dangerous extension of that, but that, that sometimes, yeah, we, we feel we have to be yeah. one or the other, you know, ill or, or perfectly healthy. And, you know, we know there's a, there's a whole eating disorder around obsession over healthy eating Yeah, that can go incredibly normalised in our like hyper diet fad culture.
0: Yeah, I think you you summed it up perfectly there I can't remember what you said but (laughs) you said it perfectly in that it almost feels like you have to or you failed if you can't go from having eating disorder to being the recovered person and maybe that's just my perspective and I, I want to say as well like I don't think that it's never possible I think there is so much the same, you know, with what you're talking about with doctors and stuff, there is so much, um, I can't think of the word, my brain's dead, importance, I don't want to say importance, that sounds rubbish, but you know what I mean, that, you know, there's so much to be said for people that have lived experience going into, you know, when something that they have personal experience of, because they've got that, you you know they can empathize and I think you know when I do speak to people that have lived experience of an eating disorder you know whether they're a therapist or a nurse or whatever and they're now working in that environment it's incredible to see because they've got that clinical perspective but also they get it um I think sometimes, like I said, there just needs to be that break, you know, pausing a little bit just to find out who you are. And I think that also, you know, ties into medicine as well. And that, that, you know, the whole kind of training and career and everything, you're engulfed into that and you, you know, you are a doctor and that's your identity. And it's the same here. I think being able to step back from your eating disorder, work out who you are, and have that as a really solid foundation and then if you want to go and work in eating disorders or mental health amazing like brilliant you're going to absolutely do incredible things because you've got that experience but I think yeah I think when you have mental health struggles a lot of the time that people fundamentally miss out on is that self-care aspect And if you just go from having the mental health issue to supporting somebody you've not kind of learn the
1: self-care bit yes and we can have such such high expectations of ourselves you know and it's not it's not necessary recovery is fucking tough (sighs) and so to make progress in it is brilliant we don't need to get full marks you know the like the flippant uh, comparison I've just thought up it's like if somebody had been injured in a shark attack we wouldn't then expect them to be a shark handler in a circus like you, you know I love you're, that. Like, you're allowed to just get better and go live your life and you know there's and yet sometimes that can be the the, the pressure you might feel that you know and I, I I can't look I have a mental health podcast I can't say I'm not influenced by that at times as well you know feeling like okay I've overcome certain things what do I do with that but you know this is the flip side you know I've I like to talk about the positives that can come, that whilst I wouldn't have chosen my mental illnesses, with the position I'm in now, if I could change time and never have experienced them, I wouldn't choose that either. I don't know who I would be. I don't know where my life would be. I have no confidence whatsoever my life would be any better or further forward, or, you know, any success levels would be different. I really genuinely don't, you know, and that's not to say it hasn't been really tough. And there's still a lot of work involved in in maintaining a certain level of mental health. However, like you said, there is such empathy, you can learn from it. There is such connection. You know, I, I often say that going through hardship can teach you to be cruel or to be kind Mm -hmm. and you know there's a specific kind of brand of kindness that can come from overcoming mental ill health adversity that I you know I love in people and it's funny to be like so the other side of the stigma now that sometimes I have to check that I'm not like reverse stigmatizing and like <laughs> worrying if uh, maybe I have favoritism towards people who have experienced mental health over those who who haven't, but you know, I luckily, I don't believe in that anyway because it's all a spectrum.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and you know it's not it's not a binary in that way.
0: I think you know i I do agree. I think when you're in the depth of it all, it feels awful and it feels shit. but like you say, would you change anything I don't know I I think you know whatever life throws at you life does throw curveballs um Mm -hmm. and and it's I was speaking I said this on a podcast a couple of podcasts ago but you know every time I've had a dip I seem to feel like I come up higher um and you know I don't want to you know say that and say that that's everybody's experience because I know that some people you know it's it's very constant and I can imagine that's very difficult um but I think like you said kind of trying to see the positives even from the most awful situations um I always like to have a positive mindset (laughs)
1: Yes, it's hard work and there's definitely dangers of, you know, toxic positivity of pretending everything's okay when it's not. But no, I agree. I'm very relieved that I'm an optimistic person. I think I fucking needed to be many a time. And, uh, you know, that's something that no matter where I've been with the depression, I feel like my optimism and my hope
0: has always
1: won Um, or yeah. And I remembered actually what I was was going to say earlier as well around, you know, we were talking about the concept of full recovery and how there can be certain dangers to really clinging to that. Um, I also feel the need to kind of like counterbalance it and say that, you know, whilst I don't believe uh, wholeheartedly in that concept, I do. I do see so much hope irrespective of that that recovery is so brilliant and I'm so glad to have done so much of it myself and I'm very content to be on the never-ending road and find Mm. different ways to feel better and new things to add to my toolbox of mental health and new forms of self-care to discover. Uh, particularly at a time when self care seems to be quite aggressively marketed to us at this stage, so I always love finding self care that's free because it's it's yeah. like that's the stuff we're not encouraged to uh, mm. be thinking about because it doesn't make people money. So I yeah I think there is so, such hope in recovery, and I think it's a really lovely way for me personally to view it to see it as an ever ending road that that gets better mm. and. You know, maybe that's how I see life. Maybe I see it as like a progression. Yeah. You know, that you get older, you get wiser and you find new ways of being healthy as mm-hmm. opposed to necessarily got to be perfectly healthy because, you know, we'll, we'll age <laughs> one, way, one way or other. <laughs> that will be scuppered. But I, you know, I feel like I'm so much more knowledgeable about what works for me now and that's a power you know and also we both have experience of the things we learn and how much it connects you to other people you know if you can be a good listener to somebody in a conversation about mental health even if you've had a lot of practice and listening doesn't feel like as much of a skill as maybe when you worked on it more that that can be life-changing that can bond that person to you in a way that I think few other things can, maybe like near death experiences.
0: Mm. Yeah, I really liked what you just said then about kind of that endless road, because I think when you said about the dangers of full recovery, what I initially thought or like instinctively thought of was um, how, you know, in a lot of people say in each disorder recovery to be really be present in the moment. And I think that's the toxicity of the idea of full recovery is because you have this idea in your head when you actually get to it or when you're actually achieving something that, you know, is better than when you're in the depth of your eating disorder, you might not acknowledge it because it's like, well, it's not what, it's not what I thought it would be. And, you know, I've had so many experiences recently, like yesterday, I went for a skateboarding lesson and um, it was amazing. I absolutely loved it. But when I was cycling home, I thought, you know a few months ago there is no way that I would have messaged somebody I didn't know to ask for a lesson there's no way I would have gone and done something that I wasn't very good at because I was only just starting um I would have cancelled I would have got too anxious about going and I thought this is it like I'm doing it like this is the path but I think if I hadn't if I'd have just thought well it's going to be this thing in the you know it's this one thing I think that is recovery, I would have missed out on realising that actually what I did yesterday was a massive step.
1: Yeah. Oh, so brilliantly said. (laughs) I love that. It's so great to hear. And I kind of, is that not life in general that we have these surprises? um, You know, maybe it is about choosing how we respond to them. You know, recovery can come in all sorts of boxes. And, you know, living life to the full can as well you know something i've been really trying to practice this year is you know taking compliments and really believing them you know we're we're so quick to you know internalize and chalk on our soul uh some really horrible things that people can say and you know understandably a lot of that does come to like threat perception some of our primal instincts about you know where what, what's gonna be our demise and our brain can do, do so much overdrive with that, which can be exacerbated by experiences like anxiety. Um, and you know, and so there is a certain amount of learning to focus on the positive stuff more. You know, A certain amount of that can come with practice, which is quite exciting. Um, and yeah, I, I have that a lot with work because I'm so busy and I'm on a constant treadmill podcasting is a good example you're getting an episode out every week and your focus can be so pulled to constantly what the next thing Mm -hmm. is and then when somebody you know emails or someone in my life that's listened to an episode you know gives me a really heartfelt piece of you know feedback about some of my work I still have to remind myself to really sit in that Mm -hmm. to really feel it and not jump to Oh, but you know the sound quality was a bit weird on that one, wasn't it? <laughs> right. I mean, here's the example because you've you've got lovely nail varnish, Sean. Like, how often do people you compliment somebody's nails and then immediately they're like, "Oh, but look at this one; it's chipped."
0: Yeah. <laughs> Classic example. I like your top. Oh, it's only Primark. Why do you need to say it?
1: <laughs> Which whereas that's good here in Ireland, we so Primark here is called Pennies and it's such a love brand it's not it's not got the same like primary kind of attitude that you have <laughs> in the UK and so I love that like I love that people will be like oh yeah pennies only six euro like people are proud <laughs> of it. And I, like I try and embrace that in more of my life True. yeah
0: yeah absolutely um no I think I think you're so right especially what you said about the podcast because you know you've done that like that that's you and you know it's you know been born from nothing and and you're doing that and I often feel the same when you know we reached a milestone the other day with downloads and I wasn't excited and my mum was like this has literally come from nothing Mm. and you're like yeah actually that is pretty decent actually yeah
1: yeah, because I made no bones about it. Nobody asked me for a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I decided the world needed this. And luckily enough people agree with me. Yeah. And that's the wonderful thing that, you know, the downloads, again, comparison culture can come into it. But, you know, it is amazing when you, you know, f- sometimes have to force yourself to think about it in terms of like how many people that is. Yeah. You know, sometimes I like look up, you know, stadiums and like do the maths because, you know, s- I think there is something to be said for being like, no, I will be grateful for these achievements, <laughs> even if I have to be really logical to kind of force myself to be. Yeah. Um, you know, pause on these milestones, make the most of them, you know, particularly in a time when, who knows what's happening with the world right now? Who knows what the direction will be? There's a lot of concerns out there in the world and we are allowed to be proud of ourselves amongst a world of chaos. it's our right and I do think it's an integral part of recovery
0: Mm.
1: you know to be proud of yourself to get back to caring about yourself in the way that you deserve to
0: yeah absolutely so nicely said um
1: (laughs) I just like am I going into preacher mode
0: (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to ask you um because we were kind of talking earlier about like stigmas and stuff like that. And I think our generation, um, especially because I don't know why, I think we're all quite, quite a lot more open and accepting um, as a generation. So, you know, I feel very grateful that I can just turn to my friend and say, you know, this is what's going on. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas I think, you know, if I, I look at my, parents there's a lot more sort of they keep a lot more to themselves and maybe you know if they were diagnosed with I don't even think they would go for a diagnosis if I'm honest but I what I wanted to ask was just kind of if you had any thoughts on sort of older generations as to
1: mm-hmm.
0: kind of how that could be more open because it's almost like it's ingrained to not talk about um but I don't know from if you've had any gaps sort of that have shared their experience
1: sure I I think you're right there is that ingrained mentality of we don't talk about certain things that can exist in the older generations and that seems to go broadly across so many different cultures and yes it's changing but I I always try and you know have a certain amount of understanding for the different times that people were raised in you know I've been lucky to have certain success with campaigning for mental health education to be in schools. Um, And you know, that is is great progress, but that is an understandable criticism I get from people. Well, what about the people that have already been through school? What about them? And you know, there are a lot of like older listeners to my podcast, for example, who are, you know, there as examples of people that are seeking the information that they never had and you know i say all this to say that you're totally right these conversations can be really tricky and i say all of that to kind of agree with you that you know it is difficult having these conversations and and older people can come up with certain stigmatizing language that they may not realize Mm -hmm. you know or they may not have the words to discuss certain things because they've never discussed it before and we can kind of you know as as kids I think that's kind of one of the big heartbreaks of growing up is realizing your parents are fallible and that they can be both incredible and the people that made you and the people that raised you but also have deep flaws that oftentimes do relate to trauma you need to figure out later and I think a certain amount of that trauma you have to figure out as an adult like you can't all figure it out at the time and Yes, the conversations are difficult. Language is a big part of it. You know, I when I talk to older people, I do sometimes brace myself that I know this may be going to be terms that don't quite add up or don't quite, you know, feel right to me for different reasons. But you know, instead there's there's the ways that people are trying to have the conversation, the, the intentions I maybe have to focus on a little bit more than the language, but then still try and kind of be a bit corrective around things. And, you know, a lot has changed. Like even f- for example, like person first diagnoses, right? So talking about like, um, uh, let me think of a really clear example for you. Uh, so for example, not calling somebody an albino, but instead a person with albinism. Albinism, I think, is the correct pronunciation. And there's the example. I don't fully know how to pronounce the correct version of that because we've grown up with it being said mm-hmm. a way that could be better. And so, so much is changing. And so, even you know, in healthcare, that's still relatively new to talk about the person and then the condition that they're experiencing. So yeah, there's a. It's tricky, but it's it's possible, and there's resources out there. You know, maybe people didn't have certain education, maybe people didn't have certain conversations growing up. What do they have now? Podcasts, <laughs> books, you know, blogs, so many ways. And you know, I have a lot of our listeners will write in and say, you know, I'm I've had such and such a condition, um, you know, I played this episode for my parents or for my boyfriend or whoever. And it really helped. Mm. And and that's so wonderful. And that can, you know, that can be a good bridging of the gap that it is scary to have these conversations, particularly when you know that somebody could be quite likely to say the wrong thing or could be resistant, even out of a place of love. Mm. You know, how often do people deny that you have a problem because they wished it wasn't true.
0: Yeah. That's so true. Actually, I've never thought about it like that. But actually, yeah, when you know, if you're trying to have that conversation with someone, and they're like, "Oh, but maybe it's just, maybe it's just this. Maybe it's, maybe it's, you know, something not as significant," and actually, not them trying to put you down, or that they think that you're making it up. It's just that they don't want that for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. and I, I've had that. I had that with a um, a friend of mine actually, who's like much older than me, and we met through. Mental health work, and so I maybe had certain assumptions that he would be really clued in, and Mm. in in so many ways he was, and yet there were still biases towards you know thinking certain conditions looked certain ways, and so he he is an example of someone who tried to dispute that I have experience of depression, and you know did was kind of along the lines of like oh you you're not really the type you're like too productive and. You're too successful and things like this and i'm like god if only you knew like <laughs> you know it's so common we're everywhere <laughs> like, you can't move for the for people with depression in in plenty of high-flying industries and you know i i obviously kind of we've worked past that now and he's got to understand my my life a bit better but you know, uh, the more and more we can shift the narrative towards, oh, it's, you know, <sighs> I'm not saying this is perfect either. But if you'd been surprised how well I was coping, if you'd been like, oh, mm. that's incredible, I never would have realised. That still might be a bit weird to hear, but it would have felt a lot better than just like flat out denial. You don't see the type. But also reflecting on it since, I do wonder how much that could be a reflection of his experience growing up in a different time and how certain yeah. people didn't get the help. Yeah. And maybe did kind of live a more sort of stereotypical, you know, recluse life or whatever kind of dramatic representation people would think of being able to see depression.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you kind of said there. That- what I was just sort of thinking in my head um, in that I think the the issue comes when people have those expectations of you know depression looks like this anorexia looks like this or whatever yeah. and I don't blame anybody for having those expectations because I don't think it's anyone's fault I think it's what we've been led to believe I think yeah. the important part is then you know if somebody does come to you and say I'm experiencing this and in your head you think hmm, to expect that you know I thought this or whatever is to then you know educate yourself I don't mean educate yourself like slapping, snapping my fingers like educate yourself or whatever <laughs> like that I mean like you know go read yeah. go go read and go explore it and you know in a very compassionate way and actually that's why I love podcasts so much is because you you know ones like this where two people just sit down and they have a chat it's almost like you're sat in the living room with your friends listening to them have a chat and it's 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 easier to kind of gain a broad perspective of rather than going to read the dsm-5 and trying to look at the criteria for an eating disorder because yes that's how they diagnose this but actually that's not that's not how it looks in society um so yeah that's much of a penny on that
1: Of course, and there's such colouring in of hearing people's lived experience firsthand. Mm -hmm. You know, it isn't that if somebody listening does go that route of getting a family member to listen to, let's say, an episode of your show so that they can better understand their experience, well, it feels like such a better starting point for somebody to be able to ask, like, oh, did you experience that thing similarly versus going in cold and being like, "Okay, so what what does that mean? What does that look like? explain it <laughs> because even if it's not given in that direct tone it can still feel quite scary to answer questions like that which at certain times in our recovery we we certainly don't know the answer to yeah. Yeah. depends on the day <laughs> it's my yeah. answer even now what does yeah. it look like
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely well, thank you so much, Bobby. It's been so lovely to speak to you. Um, I'm sure people have thoroughly enjoyed it as well. So where can they go to hear more of your voice?
1: Sure. So the easiest thing, luckily I'm enough of a computer nerd that the, the SEO is good. So you can search my name, Bobby Tempts, on uh, your favourite podcast app um, or Google and uh, find all of my links there. And uh, yeah. I've got obviously the mental health show or if you want something lighter which definitely still acknowledges that mental health is a big factor uh, I also have a a relationship podcast where I interview a lot of comedians Um, so yeah two two shows every week and uh, yeah manage to fit some self-care in between (laughs) (laughs) that's
0: what we like to hear yeah oh amazing it's been a pleasure to speak to you If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support, or talk to someone you trust.